We play and call it work. Mini Wargamer Dave here from MiniWargamer.com. Welcome, Wargamers, to the Shrine of Chaos. If this is your first time tuning into the Shrine, then welcome. There's one very simple rule. You must not collect Tau. If you do, then you're not allowed in the Shrine. It's just a simple... I, I don't make up the rules. The Chaos Gods, along with the Chaos Dice Gods, made up this rule, and I just do what they say. I am just a personification of their will. So if you can accept these terms, then you may stay and enter. We have a very exciting show today. It's a unique show. We don't typically have guests, but uh, when we do, we like to have a fun time. Uh, I have uh, a special guest. Uh, it's the very first time he's been on the Shrine of Chaos. He has uh, many, many credits to his name. Uh, too many to list, but there is a few that uh, we will certainly go into as the show progresses. Uh, and uh, I bet a lot of you have, in fact, I, I bet that each of you have heard his influence at some point in your lifetime. That, that's my bet, especially if you're in this hobby, especially if you are on the Games Workshop website, especially if you've seen the Warhammer Ident, um, or perhaps the Angels of Death trailer, um, or maybe even the show Outlander. Whatever the case may be, I'm pretty sure you have heard his compositions and his music and his awesomeness. I'm super excited for this because I'm a huge TV and film fan, and we've had uh, a number of discussions, Jonathan Hartman and I, and uh, I'm going to go into some of that as well, and we're also going to show you some of his hobby, because just like you and I, he is a true hobbyist. He likes to throw a dice just like the rest of us, and uh, he just happens to be an epically awesome music composer. So, without further ado... Welcome, Jonathan. How are you? Hi. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I have to just put this disclaimer out there. Uh, you yeah. are not coming live from Valhalla, uh, although that would be pretty sweet. You are coming live from your uh, studio, because uh, there's a little text at the bottom there. Uh, but that oh. just to diffuse <laughs> any sort of comments that might come in regarding that. Uh, sure. So, Jonathan, uh, actually, first and foremost, what would you say is... Uh, your favorite thing to do as a composer of music? What, what's your what's your process that you go through? Uh, which specifically for film and television, or for yeah. my things for myself? Um, for well, film and thing, television, yeah. Sure, it's it's a it's a very collaborative thing. Uh, I think sometimes people maybe imagine that you kind of go off into a little room and do everything yourself, but in reality, it often starts very, very early on uh, with the production company, with the directors, with the producers. Uh, for example, there's a project I'm talking to now that is, we're just in the script stages. They haven't even shot yet, but they're already kind of thinking about how is music going to integrate with the storyline. And so we've been having meetings and discussing that. And so that actually influences the story. Uh, oh, yeah. Sometimes it's a circular process where, you know, sometimes I'm just at the very end and I get picture and I just do it at the end. Um, but, you know, it varies. I think that um, a big part of the early stages, maybe before you've even gotten too deep into a project, is trying to establish tone and sensibility. Yeah. And a big part of that sometimes is figuring out what doesn't work early on, like trying to find the bounding box of, 
I think this project lives in this space, you know what I mean? And, and sometimes having a little bit of those rules helps you uh, kind of, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's, you know, Star Wars plus this, plus that, and it lives in this kind of space. Um, and, you know, sometimes people come in and they have a very strong opinion before you've even started, like we're hiring you because we want you to make this thing. And sometimes it's a little more open and uh, more experimental. Um, it, it just varies depending on the filmmaker that you're working with. Right. Uh- so what, what are some uh, credits that you would uh, highlight? I know you have many, you've been doing this a long time. So what are some credits yeah. do you think uh, would be cool to share? Um, well, there, there's some things that I've, I'm particularly proud of that maybe not a lot of people have seen, per se. And there's things that I've done extra writing on. Um, to be honest, some of the stuff that I was most proud of before I was even known as a composer was doing assistant work. The, I broke into this business working for John Ottman, who did all the X-Men movies. And I, I learned an immense amount working for John for two and a half years just in his studio and being adjacent to it. Um, in terms of things people may have seen, um, I, you know, I, I broke into television doing some extra writing on the first season of Outlander with Bear McCreary, which is an amazing experience just working with Bear for people that may not know Bear. Uh, he did Battlestar Galactica, he did Walking Dead, he did Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., he's done um, a ton of uh, great television out there, uh, as well as feature films. Um, he did that Godzilla movie recently. But that was an amazing experience just in terms of process and uh, being around somebody who's doing so much television and learning from it. Um, in terms of things people may have seen recently, on the Sci-Fi Channel last year I did a show called Superstition, uh, which was on Netflix internationally and uh, with Mario Van Peebles. That was an incredibly fun experience. Um, I did a movie that came out last year with the people from Downton Abbey uh, called The Chaperone, which was a 1920s era film. And we did kind of quasi-authentic music that would sound like it was of that period. Um, and then, of course, saw the stuff with the workshop recently. So your your scope is, it sounds like it's pretty broad. You, you got some jazz music in there. You have cinematic yeah. sci-fi music. And then you have... <clears throat> yeah. Orchest- orchestral music. Uh, yeah. I, I had a weird um, kind of musical childhood of sorts i i got deeply into um, jazz music when i was younger like 10 11 years old and i started playing professionally when i was 15 as a saxophonist um so i was really deeply deeply entrenched in the jazz world in the first half of my career performing all around the world and living in new york city and touring um and always kind of obsessed with film music and tv music as well um but the things that i liked I missed a big period of pop music growing up. I was listening to like Brazilian music, um, like uh, samba and, and 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 things like that, Tropicalia. So when you say you were lis- listening to what, like, you would you would just play a play a record? Like- yeah, I was like, I'm still kind of a, a degenerate hoarder and collector of records, um, physical records, CDs, as well as digital. Um, but yeah, I, I, when I was younger, I would go out and my first jobs, I'd take $150 cash. I would go to a used record store. I'd buy records at two, three dollars a piece. I'd come out with a stack of them. I would go home. The stuff I loved, I'd keep. The stuff that I was like, eh, it's okay. I would tape and make copies of. And then I'd return the rest or sell the rest back, turn it around at half price, and then buy more records. And that's just my whole life. I've been like that. I just have thousands of records in my collection. So yeah, I was listening to a ton to, to Brazilian music. To mid 20th century string writing, you know, Igor Stravinsky, uh, minimalists like um, Steve Reich and Philip Glass, uh, soul and R&B stuff, you know, Stevie Wonder stuff, Commodores, Lionel Richie, um, and tons of jazz. And then on the film music side, people obviously like John Williams, but also um, Jerry Goldsmith, who did, you know, Planet of the Apes and Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and you know, all that kind of stuff. I was obsessed with that stuff. So, what's your, what would you say, 
is your favorite band? I mean, it's kind of, it's not the same as, I mean, a band is a band, right? Uh, whereas a music uh, composition for movies is something separate, but. Sure. Uh, like, do you listen to, uh, I guess, uh, pop culture type of music? Yeah, yeah, well? but I, I just, there's a big swath of it I kind of missed just growing up at a certain period. Um, in terms of bands, bands, I, I it varies. Over the last, like, three, four years, I've been really deeply kind of going back to some roots things that I loved as a kid. Um, I've always been very obsessed with D uh, David Bowie. I've been completely obsessed with um, Peter Gabriel my whole musical career. Um, I've probably... I have almost every David Bowie album he did, you know. I've got maybe, I don't know, 20, 21 David Bowie albums, um, you know, from the early stuff and as well as, you know, the mid stuff, the 80s stuff, Tin Machine and Low and even to his last record, Black Star. And same thing with Peter Gabriel. I have all of the untitled, you know, early 70s, early 80s records and then Us and So and, you know, all the kind of classic stuff. I love that stuff a lot. So let's, uh, let's bring it back to Workshop for a second because uh, mm -hmm. that's... Uh... Uh, that's just super cool. Uh, so what, yeah. can, what can you tell us about uh, working on, uh, let's start with Angels of Death. Like, uh, yeah. How did that, how did that happen? Like, was that the first uh, GW uh, contract, I guess? Or, uh, uh, yeah. So it's like a lot of things in my career, there are things I started on that maybe people will see after other things have come out. Like I'm just kind of used to that now. Um, yeah. The ident was the second thing I started working on. Angels of Death was the first. Um, it came about kind of, it mainly came about through Bowman Modine. And so Bowman is one of the producers along with Richard Boylan on that and writer director on it as long as well as Richard. And I've known Bowman uh, about oof, 18 years now, long time, since he was a kid, almost since he was a teenager. And so Bowman and I have been friends for a long time back from New York City. And he's a huge, huge fan of Warhammer and 40K and um, <clears throat> Tao which, you know, I won't hold against him. Um, but he he and I have been friends forever, and he had been reaching out to Workshop for a long time, wanting to work with them and do something. And he and Richard, I think, had approached them, my understanding, after having done, they did a short film together called The Guardsman, which is on YouTube, which was like, I think just more of like a proof of concept to show that you could do something, you know, on a kind of scrappy budget. And um, my understanding is that Workshop kind of then went to both of them and said, let's make this thing. And then Bowman came to me and said, you know, you've been, we've been friends forever and you worked on a ton of films and I know you're the biggest Warhammer fanatic I know. And do you want to be a part of this? And I also kind of had the benefit of having some friendships in games workshop outside of the media people that I work with now. Um, so, you know, for many, many years, I've been friends with John Blanche, uh, one of their best creative concept artists. I love John to death. Um, there's a lot of people around, his circle of kind of Blanchitsu people who've been featured in White Dwarf, who um, I'm friends with and have played games with personally. And so there were a lot of kind of overlapping intersections. There's a lot of people I'm friends with that used to work for the company extensively for, you know, decades. Graham McNeil is a friend of mine, an acquaintance of mine. He lives nearby, actually. Um, so when they came to me, it seemed like a good fit, you know. Uh, going back to Guardsmen for a second, D Nexus K and Scardcast. Uh, both say Guardsman was awesome. Yeah, I didn't have anything to do with Guardsman, but yes, it, it is pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> so I just wanted to point that out. Uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't. Do that it's an amazing short film. Yeah, it is an amazing short film. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. 
In fact, I was surprised because I've known Bowman for so long, and they went and did that. And I didn't know they were making it. He didn't. He didn't call me up. You know, not that he has to, but um, it's not. I never got the four one one. Like, hey, guess what? We're doing this thing. It's like, also, oh, you- you're also awesome for loving David Bowie. Oh man, how yeah. can you not? If you have, what is that? There's that that uh, Thirty Rock quote with Jack Donaghy. He's like, I have two ears and a heart, right? They're talking about, I think, Phil Collins, but yeah, David Bowie, man, holy cow. Yeah, Slayer Case is pretty cool. Uh, he said that he gifted me an axe, and uh, it is in the Shrine of Chaos right now. So I, I use it to protect oh, wow. myself. It's a real axe; it could literally kill somebody. Um, and that's what a that's what a guy does who is a <laughs> who is a supporter of the Shrine of Chaos. <laughs> that's cool. Um, so about the ident for a second. Uh, yeah. Working with okay, so that was a real orchestra. That was a huge, not yeah. just a, not just an orchestra, but like it was a. How many piece orchestra was that? That you. It was ninety musicians in total. Uh, so. And you went there to, to record. Yeah, we, yeah, we recorded at Air Studios in London, in in, in Hampstead, London, uh, which is an absolutely amazing. Um, uh, recording studio. Uh, Hans Zimmer does all of his, almost everyone, all of his films there. Um, it's an amazing place. It, it's built out of this, I, th- I think it's like, I don't know, six, 700 year old uh, church. And it was converted over in the late 70s by George Martin, who produced the Beatles. And he also had built out most of um, Abbey Road. And he decided to take this location and build it as a as a studio. And it's this amazing um, facility, and it's just it's got a great sound to it, but it's got an amazing vibe on it. And the people who work there are just absolutely incredible. In fact, one of the guys who was um, like an assistant on on this, like a, a assistant, makes it sound like he was getting coffee. He wasn't getting coffee. Like he was a tech guy who worked on this recording with us. Um, uh, Jack Mills, he used to work for Peter Gabriel over at Real World Studios. So we had one of the guys who worked for Peter um, on the ident, which was amazing. So, uh, okay. The- oh, but answering your question, I didn't answer your question. <laughs> so that's okay. It's, it's by the way, it's, you have so much information in your head. It was you can, twenty. It was twenty-four. Be a perfect guy in a documentary because you know yeah, so much stuff. It was uh, twenty-four choir, twelve men, twelve women, mm-hmm. uh, one uh, uh, child soloist singer. And uh, a twelve-year-old boy um, named Freddie Jeminson, and then the rest was orchestra. So if I can do math, uh, ninety minus twenty-five is sixty-five. Yeah, it's a sixty-five-piece orchestra. Um, <clears throat> it was kind of recorded over a couple different sessions because um, it's what you call um, uh, striping. So we the did. Sounds don't interfere with each other. You mean you just like, yeah put them beside it, it, each other after? Yeah, exactly. So we did the brass and the strings together on a single session. And then we uh, did all the percussion separately, mainly because the percussion was so massive, it would have just like, you know, it would have blown through all the other miking on all the other instruments if you had them in the same room. Right. Um, And so we had, I think it was 12 or 14 percussionists playing 18 or 20 drums in total. It, I found out after the fact, I didn't know this, it was the largest percussion recording session in London in 2019. Wow. Which I didn't know until we were recording it. So that we were in the session and we were on a break and the head of the percussion group came over and he said, oh man, it's so great being here, all of us together like this. And I said, well, don't you record all the time? He goes, well, yeah, like he and I are doing a Marvel movie next week and she and hi and her were doing a thing last week. 
but we haven't been together like this in a while. And I said, oh, really? And he said, no one's told you. He said, tell me what? He said, mate, this is the largest session we've done. I said, well, when's the last time you were together like this? And he said, oh, last year at Christmas time for Hans Zimmer, we had like 18 of us. Um, so it was massive. I mean, we had these huge Japanese taiko drums, you know, 54-inch uh, diameter, you know, Japanese taikos. Um, I think we had <clears throat> two large taikos, four medium-sized taikos, like 24 to 36-inch taikos. So excuse my ignorance. Uh, what's a taiko? Yeah. A taiko is a Japanese, like a Japanese, you know, you see those Japanese drummers and they're hitting like yep. the big giant. Okay. Um, so those, they're like Japanese, you know, uh, kind of epic-sized drums. So we had two of the really, really large ones, you know, 54-inch or so. We had four that were medium, like 24 to 36 in size. We had four North African dun-dun drums, which are like a bass drum. We actually had two physical bass drums. We had four snare drums. We had uh, a set of tom-toms. We had a set of timpani. Um, and then there was a bunch of assorted metallic stuff. We had, you know, gongs and... Um, different metallic clankers. We had cymbals. And then the thing that people notice a lot of times on the IDET is at the end when the Warhammer logo uh, shows up, the hammer, you know, and strikes, there's a metallic smashing kind of sound. And um, that's uh, an actual, well, it's a combination of things, but it's an actual anvil. So we, um, when we, when I wanted to do this, I had this idea that we should have an anvil when you saw the hammer. And, um, I thought it'd be super funny to do and just kind of crazy to do. And I have a dear friend of mine uh, who works for Christoph Beck, who did Frozen and Ant-Man. And my friend Leo, we used to be studio mates. He said, oh, if you're going to call those guys, um, you should specifically request the same thing. One of the things we did on Ant-Man and um, tell them that you want the same thing we had, which is like the largest anvil for rent in London. And I was like, really? And I was like, yeah, like the biggest, like the biggest one. And so they brought in this anvil, and uh, we ended up hitting it with hammers and also with uh, steel, like a uh, railroad track. We hit it. Um, we also had two giant trash cans, like filled with chains that we would just kind of shunk. And um, that sound at the end is like a combination of all sorts of different metal things that we just smashed. Wow. Just yeah. the, the amount of engineering. That's, that's exactly what it is. Like uh, yeah. sound engineering that goes into it is nuts. Yeah. I couldn't know. have done it myself. I couldn't have done it myself. I have an amazing team. Um, our actual recording engineer and mix engineer, uh, Adam Schmidt, he's, he worked for Hans Zimmer for seven years. Um, Alan Meyerson is Hans's main engineer, and he worked for Alan as his assistant. And uh, Adam has worked on incredible projects. Um, he works a lot with John Paisano, the guy who did Daredevil and a bunch of other shows. Um, he... Uh, He's currently mixing a project with Klaus Badalt, you know, who worked on Pirates of the Caribbean. And when he was with Hans, you know, he worked on like the Sherlock Holmes films and Superman, the Man of Steel picture and a bunch of stuff. So we had incredibly talented people because the, the logistics side of trying to plan how you record 90 human beings is a real feat. Yeah. You know, no kidding. Yeah. And yeah. scheduling alone. Yeah, it was challenging. It, it, it had a lot of logistics just in terms of like getting all the people in, getting all the people out, making sure that, you know, you don't overrun the next recording studio time and making sure that you get all the footage that you need, all the coverage and, you know, recording versions and, you know, all the takes, you know, to edit it together. Um, plus it was recorded in surround sound. So it was intense. Yeah. So Slayer Case wants to be a professional anvil player. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think step one, get an anvil. And D Nexus yeah. K says it's very Warhammer to have massive anvils. 
Uh, and you know what? I think it would be cool if uh, I played the Warhammer Ident for everyone right now. Uh, yes. So I think it's on the Warhammer TV uh, site. I got it up here right now. Uh, so I'll play it for you guys. Um, actually, hold on. Do you guys want me to play it? I'm going to throw that out there and uh, see what you say. Because uh, it's, it's just really cool. It's just super cool to see it. Yes. Okay. I, I just wanted to see a bunch of yeses. Because Zinch told me that a bunch of people would say yes. So, <coughs> All right. Here we go. Going to play it. Did you hear that? Yeah. You, you heard it? Okay. Oh, well, I don't have the Twitch audio feed on, so I don't get... Okay. Did you guys hear that? I just want to make sure. Um, but yeah, when yeah. I heard when I heard that uh, metallic noise at the end, I... That's I, that. I now pictured the trash can full of chains and the, the anvil and, and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. It was massive. Shing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Super cool. Uh, so... Okay, I'm also going to play the Angels of Death, because uh, your music plays throughout the trailer there, right? Uh, some of it. Some of it, okay. Some, it's, it's, a, it's a mix. I mean, I'm throughout the whole series, but not necessarily the trailer, part of the trailer. Most of my stuff you know, hasn't been heard on that by the public yet. Oh, so. really? Okay. Yeah, because they haven't shown episodic stuff yet. I, I suppose that's true, yeah. Um, so that one I won't bother showing then, if it's not going to... Uh, yeah, I don't think that. I mean, you'll see it soon. Uh, do we know like uh, when that's coming out? Have they announced when that's uh, coming out? I don't even know when that's coming out. So okay, so that's and I work on it. So it's. I guess you are given what information you are needed to. Uh, it's just yeah, a, yeah. You know, but to be honest, I, that's not necessarily a comment on Games Workshop. I mean, that's kind of true on a, like every single TV show and movie I've ever worked on in my life. Right. Like, I will do the thing, and then at some point people will go, oh, by the way, it's coming out now. Or, you yeah. know, and sometimes I'll literally find out a week before it's out, you know, or yeah. a month before it's out. Um, no one calls the composer. You know, we're... I mean, There's it, a packing order, and I'm somewhere around here. <laughs> It, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, though, like, because, I mean, everyone has their specific job that they got to do, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, when it comes out, it comes out, I suppose. And I guess that's the advertising team's job to let everyone know when it comes out. Yeah, that's always marketing. Uh, yeah. You know, th this is the thing, like, especially on movies, but sometimes on TV shows, too. Uh, on feature films, I'll often work on a project and it won't come out for a whole year, you know? And... Um, a lot of times the release dates end up being kind of determined on studio side by all sorts of things that have nothing to do with even the film or you. Like they have to do with things like, well, there's another movie that's kind of like, we don't want it to compete against that. So we're going to change the release date. And um, <clears throat> when I worked with John Ottman, I'll, t I'll tell you kind of the one that always drove us a little crazy. Um, when I worked with John Ottman, we did this movie, this Warner Brothers movie called The Losers, and he did a great score to it. I think it's a it's a cool movie, and I think it's one of these movies that uh, it 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 suffered from maybe being like mistimed, right? So very good movie, uh, amazing cast, but at the time the cast was not as famous as they are now. So the cast had like Idris Elba was in it, yep. and Zoe Saldana was in it, and Chris Evans was in it, and it's the kind of cast that you would look at it and go today and go, holy cow, yeah. 
right? I remember that but, movie. Yeah, but in like 2009 or 2010. What's his face? Yeah. Negan from uh, Walking Dead. That oh, actor, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's That's also right. in it. I forget yeah, his too. name. Uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan yeah. uh, was in that movie. And so if you look at the cast now, you'd say, oh, my God, that's massive. But at the time, they weren't as famous. Right. And so it didn't have the same maybe star power that it would have now. And I remember when I was working on it for John and assisting him. Losers, we, right? That's the name of the movie. Yeah, The Losers. The Losers. And one of the things that was tricky about that movie was um, our initial release date put us up against the A-team. And similar type of movie, okay. Very similar kind of movie, you know, crew of guys and girls going off and doing hijinks and heists and whatnot. And then they moved us. So then suddenly we were two months earlier. Then they moved us again. Then we were a month after. Then they moved us again and we were a little bit before. And to this day, I always feel that movie um, suffered from its release date because it came out one week before A-Team. So there was like that one week where people went to see The Losers and then the next week everyone saw A-Team. And then they were like, eh, I'm all about A-Team because it has Bradley Cooper, right? Um, yeah. No control. You know what I mean? And I always felt bad uh, for John because... I think he did a fantastic score on that, and um, it was it was cool to assist him and be a part of that. But you have no control of when these things come out. You know, it's just its own thing. So let's open up the uh, chat a little bit to some questions for Jonathan. So if you have a question for Jonathan, just type it in, and then I'll ask him for you. Uh, by the way, Doc Hooligan says eighteen was meh. Yeah, it kind of was meh. All right, so this is from Slayer Case. So I know in some stuff like Doom soundtrack, they use like chainsaws and stuff. What is the craziest thing you've used to create a sound? And what is the most metal thing you've used to create a sound? All right. So if you're talking metal, like actual like metal music, you know, like heavy metal, I've, I'm the worst guy in the, to ask in the world about that. I know nothing about speed metal or metal music. If you're talking metal metal, then obviously the ident because we just had everything off the car you know the truck um the weirdest thing the craziest thing i've ever used to do a sound um actually it's not maybe that crazy but I, it was just like a personal fulfillment thing um i always had a secret desire to whistle on a soundtrack and um when i did the soundtrack uh for uh, chaperone they actually we actually had some like retro novelty 20s tunes and i whistled on them and did like that kind of like mickey mouse kind of like you know that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And it just had me in stitches. I couldn't believe that anyone actually paid me to like write that, let alone whistle on it professionally. <laughs> <laughs> and it got put in the movie. It got totally put in the movie. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so favorite project that you have done? This is Country Gaming ND. Favorite project? Like a uh, like film and TV project? Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. You know what? I did this thing that came out on Amazon Prime last year that I'm really particularly proud of uh, called Dark Web. And um, it had a smaller kind of first time TV people. They'd done uh, some feature films. They'd done this movie called The Circle, uh, which did well on Netflix. And uh, it's like a cyber thriller hacker style kind of story. The Circle. But, is that with uh, is that Tom Hanks? That... No, the other movie called The Circle. There are two movies called Circle, and there's one that's okay. Tom Hanks, and then there's the not Tom Hanks one. So this is the not Tom Hanks one. Um, but the uh, it was a cool project just in terms of – it happened at a time when I was starting to get deeper and deeper into synthesizers and analog synthesis, and because it was a kind of retro hacker cyber thriller thing, it had a very like Tron meets John Carpenter kind of orientation on its score. And – 
you know, that was, I, I would say, the project I would credit as being the one that I'd already had a very big interest in synthesis and synthesizers, but I started collecting and started kind of building up a collection and using material like analog synthesizers on. And so that was a real turning point in my career, and I kind of haven't gone back since. Now I would say my sound has a lot of synthesis in it, as well as orchestral elements. Um, and it kind of took me down a rabbit hole of collecting older classic gear, you know, from the 80s and, and stuff like that. So Doc Hooligan says, added dark web to my watch list and will be focused on the music for sure. Oh, cool. I think you'll dig it. It's a cool show. So D-Nexus cases, thing you'd most like to work on? Ooh. Um, things that I'll never get to work on or... <laughs> Okay, so something I'll never get to work on because someone's already doing it is the new Dune movie. I think that that's just um, that's got to be incredible to see and and be a part of. Um, in terms of things I'd like to do, um, there's there's a couple projects that are brewing. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop one out there, which is that um, you know I've been talking to the people who are working on a television reboot of Dark Shadows. And that's something that I'm really excited if it goes, you know, it this just a depends. a movie based on the old TV show? Yeah, but this would be based off the old TV show as a modern incarnation of it. Right. And I love the people who are making it. I just adore them. I think they're incredibly great creative people. Um, everything's kind of messed up right now because of coronavirus, obviously. And so, you know, that's kind of affected by it too in terms of development schedule. There's also um, some projects. One of my dearest best friends in the world is Andrew Cosby, who's a screenwriter. And um, Andy wrote the new Hellboy movie that came out last year. And he also did the TV series Eureka on the Sci-Fi Channel. And he's written screenplays for a bunch of other stuff too over the years. And we've been, we've been talking for quite a while about trying to get some projects off the ground. And... Um, one of the things we're actually really excited about is um, he. There's two things. He has a he has a TV show that's been kind of kicking around town for a while. That's a World War II era kind of commando show, and that's something I really would love to do uh, with him. Whenever it kind of finally goes, um, I, I grew up on a steady diet of like those kinds of movies when I was a kid. So you know, um, where Eagles Dare with Richard Burton and a very young Clint Eastwood. Uh, Guns and Navarone, you know, movies like that, you know, The Eagle Has Landed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, uh, D-Nexus-K says, what's your favorite 40K army slash model based on looks, if not much is known about the game, which is not the case in your case. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, favorite model or army in 40K? In 40K? Um, I'm really excited about the new Sisters of Battle stuff. I think it's incredible. I've, I had a Sisters Army back in 2003, 2004, the, you know, all pewter one. And I've just forever wanted to have um, in plastic. And I just think they're, they're absolutely stunning models um, just to be able to have the variants in the kits. I, I'm super excited about building and painting. I have some at home. I've been waiting on getting going on. Um, so that's one. I also, um, like on the 40K side, I was a huge orc collector for a long time. Right. So um, I'm really kind of excited about that new Gasco model. I think that's like an absolutely stunning kit, and I think it'd be super fun to put together. And he's got two different poses depending how you build them. So that's amazing. I'd love to do that too. I just, that and uh, like 100 mega knobs. <laughs> 
So you're an orc player as well. I used to be. Yeah, I'd like to kind of get back into that. I had 4,000 points of bad moons at one point. So uh, we're going to show off some of your stuff uh, that you've been... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of your hobby stuff. Because uh, I want to I want to show people some of the stuff that you've done. Uh, let's see here. I just want to make sure I'm... There we go. Okay, so we're starting here with... Uh, oh, yeah, they're there. Stampa. That is a like a death dread with a stomp a head, so he looks like a like a like a bubble head, like a bobblehead. <laughs> and his I called him uh, Little Kong. Little Kong. Little Kong. Um, okay, so let's see what else we got. We got another. Looks like a looted uh, chimera. Yeah. 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 Uh, so okay, this is your orc army. Mm-hmm. And who who are these guys? So uh, oh yeah, so my dear friends, uh, John Blanche, uh, sitting to my left in, or to the right, I guess if you're looking at the picture, mm-hmm. uh, you know, concept artist for Games Workshop, and behind us in his jean jacket, looking uh, cool, is uh, Jez Goodwin, who is, um, you know, I I always say that John and Jez are like the yin and yang of uh, Warhammer. You know, they're the alpha and the omega of all things Warhammer. Um, and I, I very, you know, blessed to have them in my life and consider them friends. I, so I love them both. For those of us who don't know, uh, sure, who these guys are, uh, starting with John there. Uh, who, who is John Blanche? It's John Blanche. I don't even know how long John Blanche has been with um, w- with Games Workshop. Um, John is one of the kind of early concept guys who's who's done you know, all the Inquisitor kind of concept stuff and a lot of the early Chaos Powers stuff, um, you know, like uh, original concepts for Corn and Blood Letters and uh, all the Necron stuff early on was uh, John's uh, design stuff. And to this day, he's still sketching and doing concept pieces that then get translated into miniatures for Games Workshop. Um, and then Jez... Jez is also another concept artist, and Jez uh, is the guy who basically invented Space Marines and uh, the look of Space Marines and the proportions. And there's a famous picture sometimes people have seen where there's a younger guy sitting underneath an eight-foot-tall Space Marine sketch, and that's a young Jez sitting in front of that. Jez also created the Eldar and the look of the Eldar and, you know, all their runes and all the different kind of aspect warriors. And, um, you know, that's a big, big part of, I think, Jez's legacy at that company. He also was really responsible for a lot of the new, like, Adeptus Mechanica stuff. There was recently a, a, a Warhammer Voxcast uh, with him and Darren Latham talking about their design process for the Adeptus Mechanicus. So they've both with, been with the company for a long time, and pretty much everything that you love about Warhammer, especially Warhammer 40,000, at some point probably came out of either of these two guys' minds. You know, they're brilliant. How did you uh, how did you meet these guys? How did you become friends? So I, I first met John, and um, I met John. Uh, I want to say almost six or seven years ago now, give or take. And so um, I was kind of heavily involved posting on different boards online, and there was a board, like a like a forum message board uh, called the um, like Ink Twenty Eight board or something like that. And there were a lot of Blanchetsu style people, you know, people who had been featured in the Blanchetsu section of White Dwarf and who posted there. 
and John used to post there as well, and occasionally. And I kind of very quickly figured out that that had to be John because his miniatures that he would post just looked too much like John Blanche to, to be an imitation, you know? Yeah. And so I messaged him privately and I said, hey, you know, I love your stuff. I love the chat. And then he reached out to me and he said, oh, I love your terrain and things you're doing. And that started then us emailing each other. Mm-hmm. And so we became friends online and we'd regular email each other and just chat and talk. And then eventually that led to me going over to Nottingham on some of my first trips and uh, playing some games with a bunch of other Blanche Jutsu kind of heavy converter kind of style people. And um, I met Jez through my work with Games Workshop. Um, I started going over to Nottingham to the headquarters often you know, working with the media departments. And the thing about Games Workshop is it's, you know, there's Warhammer World is there and it's like a campus. And um, inevitably, if you go over to Bugman's and, you know, you end up running into everybody that you, you know, like that makes this stuff. And so Jez, uh, Jez was always there and, and then he was always super friendly and we we got on quite well and just, he's great. He's amazing. Cool. Yeah. All right, so showing off some of your eye candy here. Uh, these are. Hold on one second. I'm gonna go over here. Oh yeah, that one. I like that one. There was some other. Uh, there we go. Okay, so. Yeah. So what is this? This looks like a diorama of Necromunda. That's it. Yeah, that's actually a that's actually a playable terrain set that I built. Um, so it's modular, and it's in like different twelve inch sections, and you could arrange them in different you know ways. And um, that big ship, I was you know sadly inspired by the Japanese tsunami, and you saw ships that got stranded on the tops of buildings. Yeah, and I just thought it'd be fun to do like a sump town, and. Um, yeah, I started building this whole set kind of around that. It took me about eight or nine months kind of regularly working on that collection. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was my main Necromunda kind of uh, terrain set for a long, long time. Uh, I'm no longer in possession of that, though. My friend uh, Nigel Wood now owns that. Yeah, that was fun. Is this part of the set? Is this like- yeah, it's part of the set. I think that's the bottom of the pylon that the ship is on. Okay. Yeah. Same with this. Uh, more details from it. Is this like one of the pieces, not on the board? Yeah, that's that's at the bottom of the pylon, yeah, where the ships are on. So there's like little kind of villages of people living out of uh, cargo containers and shanties and stuff like that. So in terms of uh, uh, aesthetic over playability, what would you say the the balance is? Like, could you play on this board easily? Yeah, you could. I did. Yeah, yeah, we that was our main go-to gaming board for guys at my club for a long time. Because um, I gotta say, it looks awesome. Like it's amazing the way it looks, and it's, it's very immersive. Like you could you can make a whole yeah. campaign on this board. Like it's so cool. Yeah, yeah, and it's also fun. Like I always have this uh, thing where you want to be able to take photos and 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 make it feel like you're actually in a place, yeah. like it's a real place, even though it's obviously you know. So a lot of this is inspired by film and television stuff. So I, I deeply suspect if I hadn't gone into music in another life, I probably would have gone into doing reduced scale miniatures for film and TV. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just find it, that stuff amazing. And I've gone to a lot of those places here in Los Angeles 
Um, so like there's a place called New Deal Studios, for example, and New Deal did like the reduced scale miniatures for all the Batman movies. And they did, um, for Chris Nolan, they did the ship from Interstellar and they did the snow fortress, uh, from inception that blows up at the end. Right. And so going and visiting, I visited some of those places and to see them in person and that kind of reduced scale miniature work or like the stuff from the movie moon, the uh, Duncan Jones movie moon. It's, oh, it's Sam Rockwell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that stuff. And I've always kind of been obsessed with dioramas. So I think in another lifetime, I probably would have done something like that professionally. In terms of playability, I do kind of have a house rule, which is like, I try to make sure that everything is functional, that, um, you know, that you can accommodate, like, there's a good example, you're showing a picture of um, some, like scabies or sump gangers uh, fighting. It's important for me to make sure that like you can fit conventional 25 or 32 millimeter bases on most of the surfaces. Um, and that way you can actually kind of move figures around and, and it's usable. Cause I feel like if you can't play on it, what's the point? I'm going to open up uh, the, uh, the comments here, some interaction with the viewers. Do you guys have any questions for Jonathan about his uh, terrain making his project, his skills, anything like that. If you do, just leave it in the chat and I'll ask Jonathan. I'm seeing one. Someone asks, how long did it take to make those? Oh, that was my first water test, that picture. And did you not say it took you eight or nine months? It took, yeah, approximately. Like I would do these 12 inch sections and I would typically give myself like three weeks, two and a half, three weeks per section to do. I wasn't on a hard, you know, timeline or anything like that. Um, but yeah, on average about three weeks. Some of the bigger ones like that ship was like a good five weeks of project. Yeah. So there's wow. a good example of them. That's when I only had two. <laughs> so there was the only two I could show off at the time. So Finn 2099 is asking a blasphemous question that I will not repeat. Oh, I see it. Yeah. That's some heresy. <laughs> uh, I haven't done Tau Terrain. Um, not because I'm anti, I'm not as anti Tao as my host. Uh, <laughs> he's anti Tao. I'm Tao uh, neutral. I Tao guess. neutral. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I haven't. I think to be honest, the reason I haven't is there's up until recently there were relatively fewer terrain kits to use as starting points. I think for that. Um, and I and I feel like in order to do Tao terrain really well you have to kind of conform to a certain kind of aesthetic to make it work. Um, and in the case of this other stuff that I've done, in some ways it's easier to be a little more ramshackle. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it can hide a lot of flaws when you're building stuff like, Oh man, I messed that up. Well, that's okay. I'm going to make it really rusty and dirty and no one's going to give me a hard time about it. Um, there's a pristine quality to doing like the Tau stuff. So how long did it did you do your uh, water effect? Oh, um, that's how no, sorry. How did you do your water effect? Yeah. So that is pretty straightforward actually. So there is a at least in the United States there's a two-part epoxy coat that you can get called Envirotex for like doing smooth coats on bars and woodwork. And that's basically just Envirotex. I didn't even add any Mod Podge or anything to do waves on it. I think in retrospect, if I would go back, I would do that on a project. 
The reason I didn't do it on this one is because I had some loose modular pieces that could be installed on top of the water effect, and I wanted it to be flat so those pieces could sit on the water. So I just did a high-gloss Envirotex finish on it, um, mixed it up, set it out on the on the balcony to dry for a day or two. Pretty straightforward. Slayer, just brushed up. Slayer K says, what kind of materials and tools do you use? Uh, so on the material side on this collection... So a lot of people have asked me this over the years on Instagram. And what I would say is um, I just start collecting everything I can find. So I had a ton of Netcromunda bulkheads, the older 1990s plastic ones. Um, I had a bunch of just assorted, you know, sheet styrene from the model train store and I-beams and things like that. Um, they are just kind of uh, like PVC tubing. There's a picture you have up right now where there's like a kind of structure on the right-hand side. Just PVC tubing. Um, and basically the way I do it is I have a giant bin and I start just piling up material until the bin overflows and then I just start pulling stuff out. So, and I, and I, and I, I'll buy kits. There's a model train store near us that used to have like miss kits with missing parts and they'd sell at discount, you know, mm -hmm. just cause they wanted to get rid of it. So I would buy all that kind of stuff, kind of in the tradition of film and TV miniature building and Griebel's just to tear it apart for parts. Yeah. He asked, I see someone asking about LEDs. So if you go on my Instagram right now, I'm starting to build some new Zone Mortalis Necromunda terrain with LEDs. Instagram. Uh, what's your name on Instagram? Shibboleth. S-H-I-B-B-O-L-E-T-H O-2. So here's your LED stuff. Yeah, those are, in fact, yeah. That's uh, from last night, actually. I was doing some lighting tests on some Zoe Mortalis pieces. There's a way I can. Yeah, so on the new Zone Mortalis um, kits, which I think are absolutely brilliant, Owen Patton designed those over in um, the Specialist in Forgeal Studios. He, he's really amazing. And so one of the things that I thought would be kind of fun would be to, um, if you scroll down, there's some more interesting, yeah. I thought it'd be fun to essentially do micro dioramas inside the Zone Mortalis kits. And so this idea of trying to have more detail, I think, is always fun. Um, but you always wonder or worry that it might get in the way of gameplay or people's hands or knocking it or breaking pieces and stuff like that. And so I had this idea that if I started doing these hyper-detailed interiors, it's a way to add a lot of kind of character to, you know, whatever you're building. But people can't actually get inside there and therefore can't accidentally break that really fine detail. Mm -hmm. um, so... This, yeah. this is all stuff that you do for fun, right? Like you don't commission terrain build. No. No, it's just all... This is just my hobby. I like, I do army building and I like terrain building. And this stuff for me recently, like if you scroll down, there's some stuff I did that was like a, um, a Space Hulk diorama. And um, I just found that I liked kind of doing mini dioramas because I feel like it was a great way to... Um, 
like do something that was kind of self-contained. You can keep going further. Oh, those. Oh, yeah, that's a set of Space Hulk terrain we built for a Space Hulk game in Nottingham. Oh, here's well, your. We played. Here's yeah. the orchestra. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's the orchestra pictures. Yeah. As is uh, the Space Hulk. Yeah, I think a little further down, even further. It's. Oh, what? Oh, you got books in there. That's crazy. Oh yeah, that's cool. I haven't, I haven't gone back to that one yet. I'm going to at some point. So it's cool how you lose I, like the things from the what's that terrain? Pe I recognize it, like the mm -hmm. legs. Uh, mm -hmm. I forget what it's called, but yeah, awesome. it's like the support structures. Awesome idea for a bookshelf though in the 41st millennium. Like so cool. Yeah, so I would like to do uh, on one of the Necromunda boards a. So a bunch of people are like, oh, all these rare books in the Underhive. I was like, no, 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 no. The reason why they're still there, they're all like tax records or something. They're all like imperial paperwork, and then they just shove it in a um, corner. Is this what oh, you, there we go. That's what yeah, you yeah, want yeah. show? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I remember you sending me this before. Uh, is how to get this better? Get yeah, this better is like a little, this is a little diorama, like a Space Hulk themed diorama. Someone says, did I see space sharks? Yes, you saw space sharks. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's cool. That's super cool. I loved growing up, you know, you know, again, being a fan of this stuff forever. I remember the old space hawk diorama that was in White Dwarf, you know, and it's actually in the museum over there now in Nottingham. And uh, just being super excited by just the whole visual idea of that. And I thought it would be fun to do something that felt like a throwback to that, but with some modern lighting techniques. And Come on, how do we make this bigger? I know. I don't know how you can bigify uh, Instagram. I don't think you can. I don't think you can. But that's cool, man. I love it. Yeah, so cool. that was fun to paint. And there's something about doing little dioramas too, micro dioramas where they're in a little, like I've gone over to like the craft store, or like Michael's hobby shops in the U S and you know, you can get like shadow box frames, small shadow box frames. Right. And there's just something very fulfilling to me about doing this thing. And then you put it behind glass and you install it and it's just perfect forever. Like the OCD in me is like, Oh, here's a perfectly comprised thing. And now I can hang it up on the wall and you know, it's, it's trapped in amber or something. I have a couple different ideas for some that I'd, I'd like to do some more 40K mini dioramas. Um, I actually have this long-term idea. I don't know when I'm going to get to it. I have all the miniatures because I'm a degenerate miniature hoarder. But um, I've bought a bunch of uh, like different Dungeons & Dragons miniatures. Okay. And I've had this idea of building a set of micro dioramas that tell the story of a D&D &D party like classic old school going further and further into the dungeon and things get worse and worse and doing the same miniatures as they progress through their exploration and not all of them make it. And then physically arranging the dioramas. If you hung them up, let's say on the walls so that, you know, it looks like they go down and down and over and over. Like they're going from room to room and cavern to cavern. And that's cool. You know, I think it'd be fun to do and, you know, do led effects for wizards, lightning or for, you know, fireplaces or, yeah, dragon's breath. These are your nurglings. Which ones were? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was an experiment. That was an experiment uh, with just doing quick colors 
and then doing an oil wash and then wiping most of the oil wash back, just trying to see how that would turn out using streak and grime and oil wash. Like if I had to speed paint, you know, for army building. Ooh, what's this? Actually, this might work. Nope. That oh, that's a fun one. If you go back, not to be too shameless. The red picture's up there. Uh, oh. uh, uh, uh. Lost it. Uh, there you go. Dark web. Go, go up, go up, up, up. Not down. Oh. Yeah. Talking about like gonna, the terrain. It's down. Like... Yeah, it's down from there. Down. No, I was going to say there's a picture of me and Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy. Oh, here? Does he have glasses and a beard? There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so that's me and Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy. And on the left is Andrew Cosby, who wrote the Hellboy script. Uh, for the film, and it's my dear friend. Cool. That was a uh, that was fun. That was a good night meeting Mike. I love how it's in a red bar. That's what it looks like. It was crazy. Yeah, that was the after party at the premiere in New York City. And that next one, the other one, is me and my dear friend Hale Appleman from the show The Magicians. Okay. Hale's been on that show for since the beginning. Hale and I've I've known Hale for a long time since well before he was ever on The Magicians. Yeah. So. We're coming to a close of the show yeah. here, so if anyone has any last comments they'd like to make uh, to Jonathan, I'd just uh, post them now. Um, <laughs> you know what? Slayer Case may may end up following you on Instagram and asking. He said he has uh, a lot of questions. But he does say, you're awesome in all caps. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks for hanging out and checking it out. So... Uh, Take a look at one more thing here. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. That's that's a fun one. Yeah. That's sweet. Like I, I love stuff like that. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna end now. Thanks, guys, for uh, tuning in to this week's Shrine of Chaos. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for for. Yeah. Us. Thanks for having me. I've been such a fan of mini wargaming forever, Dave, and it's it's such a real pleasure to be here with you, dude. Oh, I appreciate that, uh, and thank you for spending time with us and. Uh, uh, giving us a kind of behind the scenes look at your projects and, and your process of of your creations and, and your art with your music and, and your hobby it's, it's it's always neat to see kind of uh you know because you're it's interesting because you are you're behind the scenes but in a huge way because it's yeah. like you know when, when, when you're the composer of the ident or what any other project that you're doing like everyone's going to see that millions of people are going to see that uh, yeah, and so I think it's it's only fair that uh, proper credit should be given, and more, I appreciate that more credit should be given because that's that's awesome, right? That that just adds to our hobby and it makes it cool. If I can just say one quick thing, I, I got to tell you, I got to really do a shout out to Games Workshop, not to sound like the ultimate fanboy, but they've they've really gone well out of their way pushing into the media sphere and trying to do it right and do it with great people and um, not. The, not to be self-indulgent about my own self, but all the people they've hired and, and been involved in this process have been really talented. And it's just an immense privilege as a fan of it forever to be part of the sound of it and where it's going forward. And, um, you know, they, they've been amazing. They've been amazing to work with. And, and I'm glad people are responding well to it, that people dig it. So Yeah, and I think so. And I think for a few years now, they, they've been certainly uh, headed in a, just an amazing direction. Uh, yeah, and it's really cool. And I think we could see the fruits of that in, in how the community has responded and and how yeah. uh, just like you just look at the hobby. I honestly think that this is the best time the hobby has ever existed. 
Uh, yeah. And I know there's a I lot. Agree. Of, there's a lot of nostalgia, and there's a lot of well, I was I was around with Rogue Trader, and I was a, you know like, and yeah. that's cool. I mean, that's awesome. Like, uh, and, yeah. But when you do the comparison, just at face value. No, the kits is, the kits are better. There's so many choices out there in the world. There's so many great people doing amazing painting and hobby that you can be inspired by and and watch on YouTube and learn how to paint and and follow on Instagram and and the company itself is just really engaged with the fans. I think it's you're right. I think this is a new golden era of hobby that maybe maybe people who weren't around for other eras wouldn't know but like i think it's an amazing exciting time to be involved in 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 warhammer and 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 all sorts of different kind of miniatures related hobby stuff it's an incredible time absolutely Uh, thanks again guys for tuning in stay tuned next week for the shrine of chaos 1 p.m eastern standard time and thanks again jonathan happy and uh we'll see you later